Good morning, everyone. This morning's Bible reading comes from Mark 2, verses 18 to 22. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, How is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunken cloth on an old garment. Otherwise a new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. Thank you, Stephanie. I feel a great deal of pressure to be funny this morning. Thank you. Uh, I'm not feeling very humorous today, so I'm not sure how I can weave it in, but we'll see how we go. Um, look, we've been, for those who are visiting or haven't been here for a while, we've, uh, we're going through the book of Mark. Uh, that's a short Bible reading, but Mark's very punchy. Uh, things just keep moving in his narrative, so that's why we're going to spend a long time looking through Mark, because I think these are the very foundational elements uh, of the Christian faith. We need to understand who Jesus is and what he came to do and, and, and everything that he's called us for. So uh, let me pray and, um, and we're going to have a look at this short but very, very important passage in this narrative. Father God, thank you uh, that as we sing that the name of Jesus uh, is to be shouted in all places, on the mountains, in the streets, in the darkness over every enemy, over our families, Lord. Father, we know that the answer to uh, the impact of sin and death in this world is Jesus. We know that every promise that you have made, the answer is Jesus. We know that the bridegroom has come. His name is Jesus, to come and collect his bride, the church. So, Father God, as we open this passage this morning, we pray... That when all is said and all is done and when we finish from here, there is only one name that people remember and that is the name of Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen. I'm not sure about you, but I've noticed an increase of a certain type of product in the market at the moment. It's usually in electronics. So it used to be that you had new products and used products. But can you think of what has come right in the middle there somewhere? Refurbished products. Have you seen them popping up? Uh, particularly over electronics. You can now buy a new iPhone, go on eBay and buy a used iPhone, or you can find a refurbished iPhone. Uh, you can go uh, get laptops, computers, uh, monitors, whatever it is, you now have three options. You can buy someone else's used product, you can buy a new product, or you can buy a refurbished product. It's a funny word, isn't it? Refurbish. What is furbish? Well, I looked it up because I had to, I was figuring it out. It comes from a German word uh, meaning to polish. So effectively, it means to renew, if you like, or to make some changes. When you buy a refurbished electronic product, 
effectively it stopped working at some point and they've gone inside and they've changed some of the components, uh, whatever those components are that make your phone or your computer work. See, on the outside it's the same product, the structure's the same, uh, the way it functions is the same, everything's the same, but there's just some components that were faulty or there was something wrong with them, so it's been refurbished. See, in our passage this morning, we have a great confrontation between the old religion of Israel that is broken and Jesus who has come to fix it. But the question at stake as we look at these early parts of Mark, has he come to refurbish the old system? Has he come to affirm it as a used product but still okay? Or has he come to bring a new product, a new religion in place? Well, I think our passage this morning is answering that very question. Is he replacing some components or is he replacing the entire system of religion? So the passage begins with Jesus being questioned about his and his disciples' lack of religious observance that his, that his followers are keeping. So have a look at verse 18. So if you don't have your Bibles, please grab a Bible if you can find it. I haven't got anything up on the screen today. But have a look at verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came to and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? See, while the language here makes it seem like a general uh, question about fasting, the original in the Greek is actually more likely pointing to a specific event that has happened which has driven everyone to fast, but Jesus's are, uh, aren't fasting. See, they're too busy having dinner parties. If you remember last week, we looked at Jesus calling uh, Levi, and he calls the tax collector, and then he ends up with a dinner party with tax collectors and sinners, feasting and, and, and no doubt sharing the gospel and and, uh, and, and being with the people as he's sharing all about the kingdom that has come into their midst. So while others are fasting, Jesus is not. And they're questioning him. See, fasting was a widespread custom right throughout the, the ancient, uh, the ancient uh, Near East. And it was always attached to sorrow and grief. In the Old Testament, there are instances of fasting. God's people fasted, but it's always a response to mourning or grief or a petition for something in life which is driving you into a despair almost. See, God is petitioned to help in the difficult circumstances, in seeking God's favour, in uh, forgiveness of sin. So in Samuel 31.13, the people of Jabesh-Gilead fasted for seven days when King Saul died. When news got back to David and all his men about Saul's death, we're told in 2 Samuel 1.12, they mourned and wept and fasted until evening. In Esther 3 and 4, when the edict is given to annihilate the Jewish uh, people, uh, there was great mourning, we are told, among the Jews with fasting, weeping and wailing. 
In 2 Samuel chapter 12, King David fasts as he pleads for God's mercy upon his sick son. Now, there's only one regular occurrence of fasting which is uh, given to Israel that they should keep, and it's in Leviticus and Numbers, and it concerns the Day of Atonement. But even there, the language about fasting there is really about being humble. It's, It's aligned to humility, an act of humility when it's the Day of Atonement, when you remember what God has done. Now, there's nothing wrong with fasting, And there's nothing wrong here. It's a custom and it's a way of expressing, usually aligned with prayer, of sorrow and grief and petition to God. But there is also a problem with fasting when it becomes a prescribed essential component that must be observed if you are considered acceptable to God. See, the, 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 the legalism of the Pharisees and the legalism of the teachers of the law and the legalism that had been built into the whole Israel, Israelite system was no longer really about people and God. It was about the religion and the power brokers that were controlling the people through the religious observances. And it had built into this place where it was used as a matter of control. And so they were basically going, why aren't you fasting? Everyone should be fasting. Now, we don't know what the instance is. Someone might have died. There might have been some, uh, some, uh, some, something written uh, into the traditions of the time. But what we do know is Jesus is basically not fasting when everyone else is. See, this kind of religious observance, Jesus breaks down over and over and over again when it's used to control people. Now, I think I mentioned last week, but you remember the the, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector that Jesus uh, talks about in Luke. Uh, He he says, so the Pharisee and the tax collector go up to the temple to pray. And we're told the Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. He says, I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. Lord, I am more acceptable to you because I'm a double faster. I am doubly religious to what even we have put into place. I don't even just fast once a week. I fast twice a week. Huh. Thank you for not making me unable to observe all these religious practices. Everybody get out of the way. Here comes the one who is so acceptable to God because he is doing the religious things. See, here we've got Jesus being questioned. How can he possibly stand before God? He's just declared himself God by forgiving the sin of the paralytic that was lowered down. And they've, they've called him on that. Hang on, only God can forgive sin alone. He's then gone and he's called an unclean tax collector to be with him. Okay, maybe one, but then he has a dinner party with all these sinners. And now he's not even fasting. Surely he is not a religious teacher. Surely he is not who he's claiming to be. So this is the big question about him. 
How is it that you suddenly can now say that your disciples don't even have to fast? Aren't legalists so wonderful people for churches? They keep us all on the straight and narrow. They're the ones that we should look up to. See, it's not the way. The way is that there is a reason why Jesus isn't fasting and he answers them with this in, in verse, 18, uh, verse 19. How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot so long as they have him with them. And then he uses uh, basically three uh, he uses these three illustrations. There's the wedding there, there's, uh, there's the clothes and there's the wine. And he's saying with the wedding, if there's an event that ever contrasts with the mourning and the funeral and the fasting that goes with it, it's the wedding. Now, many of you are married. I'm married now, I got married on the rocks. There you go, you can laugh at that. I got married on the rocks. That's my humour for the day. Uh, literally on the rocks, down at Miranda. Uh, we had, there's like a natural amphitheatre we found, and so we hired the, the place from the local council. Uh, to the dismay of all the Presbyterian brothers and sisters, we got married outside of the church building, and we, we got married on the rocks, and we gave our vows. And then afterwards, we all went to the cl Valley Bowling Club, and Peter, you'd love this. We had barefoot bowling uh, for all our guests as we were having uh, photos and then we came and did some barefoot bowling and then we went inside and I've got a mate who's a chef and he was unemployed at the time so I paid him to put on a feast. And we had a feast and it was followed by decadent desserts. Now imagine if, I turned, if all our guests turned up and I said, uh, look, Ellie's wearing black, she's got a veil on. Uh, today we've put jugs of water on your table. We'd all like you to be solemn. We'd all like you to sit. Uh, my speech is all, about <laughs> is all about how marriage is just a ball of chain, ball and chain. <laughs> I finally had 34 or 37 or 40, whatever I was, finally made the decision to, to do this. So we're going to fast. We're not having a feast. We're fasting. Like, it just makes no sense. See, and Jesus is using this illustration because he says that the kingdom of God is like a wedding feast. This isn't a sombre occasion when the actual bridegroom that everyone has been waiting for, all the promises, all the prophets, everything has been pointing to. The Messiah, as we were told in the very first verse of Mark, has arrived. The one that is meant to come and redeem the people, to take them out of the slavery of sin, to draw them out and to make them into the kingdom of God as they were always meant to be. He's come. And in those days, the bridegroom would go to the bride's house to collect his bride and go for a feast. He's come. Jesus has arrived. He is here. Why would you mourn? Of course they are feasting. 
Of course they are rejoicing. For the kingdom of God is in your midst. The king of the kingdom, back in verse 14 and 15 of chapter 1, is here. Declare the good news. The gospel has arrived. Jesus. He says, don't tell my disciples to fast. He says, but the time will come in verse 20 when the bridegroom will be taken from them. On that day, they will fast. He's not saying you then must go to your weekly fasting or if you're religious enough, go to your twice a week fasting. He's saying there will be real cause again for that longing and for that deep longing for his return. And it will drive you in your suffering and your pain and as you face death and as you face all the troubles of this world, as you long for the return of the king again to be driven into a fast. And that's the day that they will fast. But he is here right now. Don't tell my disciples to fast. And then to take it another level, he talks about clothes. He says, no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment Otherwise, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. See, he's saying, I have come. And why was I always to come? Because the promises of the Old Testament pointed to the Messiah, the anointed one, the king, who would come and redeem, buy back from slavery, would bring his people back into the kingdom under his rule, with him living with them as it was always meant to be. Now he's actually addressing the whole system of the Pharisees' religious observances. He's saying you've completely botched it. This isn't a refurbishment that's come. I haven't come to go, okay, you've got this worn out part of your religion and I'm going to put a new patch on it for you. But he's saying, and for some of you, you lived in eras where you had to patch up your school clothes, things like that. We just throw them away now. We just pile them up into these developing countries, into literal mountains. 350,000 tonnes of clothes are thrown out in the UK alone every year. You know, but some of you lived in a time where you patched and you don't go and take a new thing and put it on an old piece of, a new piece of cloth because as soon as that new uh, piece of cloth starts, I guess, ageing, it will just rip it apart anyway. And he's saying, I have come to bring something new. And we learn it's a new covenant in my blood, he says, at the, in, the, in the night before he, uh, he, he died. When he has the Lord's Supper, he says, remember this, a new covenant in my blood. See, this isn't a refurbishment. Paul says in Romans 3 that the law and all the sacrificial system and everything, all it did was to highlight the problem of sin. And so we needed a new way. 
This isn't fixing some religious system so that we can observe and feel good about our religious practices. This is something new. And then he reinforces that with the idea of the wineskins. They used to use goat skins or other skins to put new wine in, but it had to be a new, uh, a new, a new wineskin. Otherwise, if it was old wineskin, it would be brittle. And with all the changes that happens with wine as it matures, it would literally just rip the old skin apart. The new is too good for the old. And so this is what he's reinforcing. So what is this new covenant in my blood? Why is this new? Well, he's saying it's, a righteous, it's all about righteousness. You Pharisees, so you think back to the parable and the tax collector. What's the big power line? What's the big question that Jesus asks? And he says, he's said this parable to those who were confident in their own righteousness. He says, which man went home right with God? Well, the one who beat his breast looked up to and said, have mercy on me, a sinner. Not the one who stood there saying, I, I'm going to come to you with my bag of religious goodies, my sack full of fasting, and my sack full of tithing, and my sack full of all those good deeds that I've done in your name. Here you go, look. Poof. Surely you're going to let me in. He says, no, the brokenness is broken. Sin is a permeating reality and it needs a new covenant in my blood. It needs a sacrificial lamb. It needs some, a substitute to take the punishment on your behalf. But more than that, you need to be credited with righteousness in a new way, not with your sack full of good things. This isn't a scale where you weigh up all your good things against your bad things. You see, that's religion and every religion. Whether you're a Muslim, a Hindu, whether you are a Taoist or a Buddhist or whatever it might be, in the end, it is a scale of your good versus your bad because that's the very definition of religion. Jesus says, no, we're not trying to fix an old piece of broken down TV. I am bringing you something new. The only way you can be made right with God, to stand before him on the judgment day and be declared forgiven, set free, righteous, is by faith. And that faith is in the name of the Lord Jesus, the name that is above every name, so that every tongue may confess that Jesus is Lord. And the only way this can work is if there's a sacrifice that is worthy to be taken on your behalf, that there is a life that is lived in righteousness that can be credited to you. And that's exactly what Paul goes on to say. In Romans 3, he says, but now, after declaring all people falling short of the glory of God, but now, there is a righteousness from God that has been revealed. And it is by faith from first to last.
See, this is all leading to a crescendo. And next week, we will see that. We will see that end up in a plot, a plot to kill Jesus this early in the gospel. Because he hasn't just come to say, hey, look, you guys are doing good, but hey, I just need to come and teach you and train you in a bit more of this righteousness stuff. He's saying, no. I have come to bring new life, new hope, a new covenant in my blood. And there is only one way in which you can be made right with God. And that is not by your religious observances, but by putting your faith in me, the king of the kingdom. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Charles Spurgeon has in his, uh, in his devotional morning and evening, there's one day, uh, and I didn't read through the whole book to get this illustration, but I made note of this. Uh, he, he, he uses this illustration. He says, most people sit in church, and maybe this is you today, and you sit in church and you have your garment of righteousness that Jesus has provided you. It's your spiritual garment of righteousness. Okay, and it's what you're going to wear on that day as you enter into the courts of Christ himself, as you go to be with him in a new heaven and a new earth. It is a righteousness that is full from first to last. And you all have been given that. But in that, in that garment, you still believe that somehow you have put one stitch in there. You somehow think that you've contributed one little stitch because you cannot come to the point of recognising that this is a whole new covenant in his blood. You think that there's something you must have contributed that even your faith itself is something that at least you've been able to do. But when we were at Levi's baptism, he asked me to read the passage from Ephesians 2. And it's the passage which I, I gave my life to Christ when it just hit me like a bolt of blue. It's Ephesians chapter 2. For it is by grace that you have been saved... Through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. You see, there is nothing about your salvation that you can boast in. Paul says it this way, I can boast only in one thing, and that is the death, the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to go away from here, recognising that your fasting that your religious observances, they do nothing to make you more acceptable towards God. See, there is nothing that can make you more right, more loved, more acceptable. That has been won on the cross in the life, death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus. The right response to that is that you may start looking religious. 
but it's got nothing to do with your salvation. You will be renewed from the inside out by the Holy Spirit, which was a gift. And you will be driven to fast at times. And Jesus says in Matthew, when you fast, he's not saying you have to fast, he's saying when you fast, because the life as you long for my return will drive you to mourning and grieving and a desire that leads you to fast. See, right at the crux of all that's happening here in Mark is that we cannot for a moment think that he's just adding on to the old religious observances. No, this is not religion. This is faith. And it is faith that saves from first to last, that credits you with righteousness, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So I want to encourage you to be challenged by that. And there's nowhere to hide from it. He's forgiven a man his sin. He's called the worst of the worst to follow him. And now he's struck down the entire religious system that he's trying to bind him and his followers into something that is broken. No, I'm making everything new, we're told in Revelation. And it begins with how we are saved, and it is by faith from first to last. Well, let's pray. Father God, we come before you this morning and we're challenged that that the control that we often like in church and the control of making others do what we want them to do is fully taken away here, Lord. Are we to be righteous? Yes. Are we to grow in our faith and holiness? Yes. Are we to, are we to look more like Jesus in his righteousness? Yes. Are we to give up the world and cast off the things that bind us as sin? Yes. Are the strangleholds? of addiction and, and of sin, meant to be cast away? Yes. But, Father, all those things don't make us more acceptable to you because, Father, thank you that all things work for the good of those that love you and that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of Christ, that is, the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, Father God, you've secured us, you've sealed us, You've marked us and now help us to give great thanks to you by living a life in response to that which honours you. And Father, I pray for those who may be bound in a legalism which has given them great anxiety and guilt and worried that they're going to lose their faith or worried that you are no longer going to love them when they slip in their walk with you. Lord, I pray for them. I pray that you will release them from that lie and that you will set them free into the freedom. For it is by for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. So Father God, we come before you and offer our life as a thanksgiving in response that you have won us from first to last by this new covenant in your blood. And we give you great thanks for that. In Jesus' name, amen.